Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2015, a TV network that not a lot of people watch had on a scientist who not a lot of people knew. And the scientist weighed in on the often strange relationship between politics and science. When you're dealing in the interface of politics, policy, and, and medicine, the thing that I have found to be very effective is be consistent, be totally honest, and don't tell people things that you think they might want to hear. The TV network was C-SPAN. The scientist was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Tell them the truth that is based on evidence, because even though politicians, be they in the administration or in the Congress, may not be happy with what you tell them because it disappoints them, they will respect you if after a while it's clear to them that you're telling them the truth based on scientific evidence. Fauci was then, and is now, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And his approach to the intersection of politics and science seemed to be bucking a trend, a trend in which science and government have been pulling apart for decades. But five years later, when coronavirus came around, Fauci stuck to his guns on valuing science. In January of this year, the first American with COVID-19 was identified in Washington state. At that point, many researchers, many doctors knew something was terribly wrong. In early February, the CIA told the White House that China, where the new coronavirus had started, was probably covering up the toll that the outbreak was taking on its citizens. Meanwhile, the doctor who runs the World Health Organization said publicly, we need to come together to fight a common enemy, using, quote, our best science. But something strange was about to happen to that science. First, and not surprisingly, on February 25th, Dr. Fauci, one of the most important scientists in the federal government, also highlighted the rising threat of coronavirus. We are reasonably well prepared. We've had a pandemic preparedness plan that we put together years ago. And what the CDC was talking about is, is, is taking the process from containment to mitigation. And mitigation means to be prepared to do things that would slow down the spread if we had an influx of infections, such as closing schools, social distancing, teleworking, and things like that. We need to start thinking about that now, even though it isn't absolutely necessary to implement it now. The idea that the science might be pointing towards canceling schools and having folks stay at home, that idea was about to be questioned. During the two days after Fauci made his statement, President Trump weighed in a few times. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. People die from the flu, and this is very unusual. And it is a little bit different, but in some ways it's easier, and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. Uh, but uh, we have it so well under control. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. The fact is, the greatest experts I've spoken to them all, nobody really knows. 
Of course, experts in infectious diseases had been sounding the alarm, and they knew it was time to get prepared. But the science was discounted, and not just by the president, which didn't really come as a surprise to David Michaels. I think our regulatory system, our system of protecting the environment, of protecting the public's health and evaluating science, has been on the decline for a really long time. Michaels headed up OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, during Barack Obama's presidency, and he served as an assistant secretary of energy under Bill Clinton. Michaels had coincidentally published a book in early February called The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money and the Science of Deception. And for decades, he had watched as the value that the government placed on science steadily declined. When the political winds shift, and certainly the coronavirus pandemic will help those winds shift in terms of our understanding of the importance of science. When those winds shift, we have to rebuild our public health infrastructure, when we have to rebuild our regulatory system. We shouldn't just go back and say, well, we were doing it fine before. Let's just give it some more money and, and it'll do fine. We can't do that, Michael says, because things haven't been fine. Large corporations have spent decades paying top dollar to undermine science, science that could have torpedoed their products. And the fallout, he says, is this rising doubt, a doubt that is particularly noticeable in government. The doubt, perhaps not surprisingly, began with cigarette manufacturers in the 1950s, as evidence began to accumulate that smoking was causing lung cancer. And they only appeared in the 1950s because we didn't have heavy smoking in the United States until World War I, mm. when soldiers were given free cigarettes, and it took 20 or 30 years for the lung cancer epidemic to start. At that point, the tobacco industry found themselves in a tough situation, a situation that would have to be addressed. By addressing it, they meant create confusion, question the science, and as a result, the government would take no action and people would continue to smoke. Michael says that government leaders learned to turn away from good science to say, well, on one hand this, and on the other hand that. And internally, they started to tell themselves a narrative, something like this. Well, you know, the people who support me, and by support I mean give me money, want me to believe a certain thing. And that was true in the tobacco industry and, and many members of Congress who were receiving large contributions from tobacco companies, and is even more true with global warming and, and the fossil fuel industry and the coal-burning utilities that really have made particularly Republican politicians uh, made their job easier because they don't have to raise a lot of money from anyone else. You know, the money pours in. And when that happens, there's essentially this um, connection that you say, well, you know, my funders really want me to think this way. And consciously or unconsciously, they buy into that. And there are ripples out from this sort of logic. You've already bought into this attack on science, attack on intellectualism. You know, I certainly saw that. <laughs> One of the things I read about in the book is a, a congressional hearing I went to recently. I testified at a hearing on the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And I just left the Obama administration. I ran OSHA for more than seven years, longer than anybody else in the history of the agency. And I was uh, asked to testify in front of Congress. There were a panel of witnesses. There were three industry representatives, and I was sitting there. And, and a member of Congress, a Republican from Wisconsin, walked in, looked at the panel and said, oh, the Democrats have brought a professor again. 
meaning what could I possibly know about OSHA because I was just a professor. The turn away from science has meant that over the decades, we often haven't gotten the real story on everything from cooking equipment to booze, which we'll get to. But since we're in the middle of a pandemic during which the role of science and how it intersects with government has been endlessly debated, I asked Michaels, who ran the government agency responsible for worker protection, is the science being followed when it comes to making sure our essential workers are safe? Well, you know, right now, it's obvious workers across the country are terrified and justifiably. Uh, they don't know what their workers, first of all, in healthcare facilities know that they are at increased risk. You know, dozens of physicians and nurses in other countries have died of coronavirus. Right. And we have quite a few here who are already infected. They're not being given adequate protection, adequate personal protective equipment. There's not enough testing to know whether or not their patients are infected and therefore potentially transmitting the disease. Mm-hmm. The thing I've seen from talking to nurses and others around the country is they're furious that they think the administration is ignoring the science that says they need a higher level of respiratory protection than simply a surgical mask. But because we have such a shortage, they're being told that they don't really need that level of protection. And that's unfortunate. It would be one thing to say, look, we simply can't give you the protection you need and we're sorry. We didn't plan well. We don't have the equipment that's necessary. But instead, there are hospital administrators. There are some government agencies that are saying, you don't really need an N95 respirator. (laughs) It's funny to talk about N95 respirators on the radio or in a podcast because up until a few months ago, no one in the country would know what I was talking about. And now, of course, everybody does. I mean, personal protective equipment, you know, is trending on on Twitter. Right. It's increasingly clear. I mean, even before this, we knew that N95s were necessary. Surgical masks are not enough for workers in hospitals. And there's increasing evidence that that's the case. It's wrong to just say, you know, the science isn't clear or you don't really need an N95. We have to acknowledge that healthcare workers certainly need N95s. They need protection. And we just didn't prepare well enough to give them what they need. Surgical masks help. And there's certainly we, we're not going to ignore that. But we don't want to pretend the underlying science isn't there or confuse people by not telling the truth about what the studies have shown us. Is there anything that OSHA can do, should be doing to help workers on the front line, whether they're healthcare workers or anybody else uh, right now? Oh, absolutely. I go back and forth between being furious and being just disheartened by OSHA's unwillingness to step up to the plate here. When I was running OSHA, we were developing a standard that would say this is what employers must do to protect workers in healthcare settings from infectious disease exposures. OSHA has a, a very good standard on bloodborne pathogens, which OSHA issued in the middle of the HIV AIDS epidemic, but it has no rules about exposure to airborne pathogens like coronavirus or influenza. We actually had drafted this standard and we were, the agency was working on that when the Trump administration arrived. And one of the first things they did was stop work on that standard. Mm. It's ready to go. And, you know, I've recommended that OSHA issue an emergency standard, mm. which would essentially require hospitals, nursing homes, other institutions to follow CDC guidelines, understanding that if the proper PPE is not available and hospitals have done their due diligence, have really tried to get, they won't get cited by OSHA. 
But there are many institutions, especially nursing homes, which have been one of the real centers of, of this pandemic in the United States, right. uh, who aren't doing the job they need to be doing. And workers there are being exposed and they are furious about what's going on. Mm. So that's one thing OSHA could do. The other thing OSHA could do is just to be out there in public telling employers across the board, telling grocery store operators, telling employers who have public-facing employees that they have to do what they can to protect workers. It's shocking to me that, that Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia is not next to President Trump in these daily briefings. We see the Secretary of Defense. We see uh, the Attorney General. We see other cabinet members there talking about activities within their authority to help the country. OSHA does have rules that apply. OSHA, for example, has a very clear rule that said if a worker raises their voice in concern about a safety and health matter, they can't be retaliated against. They can't be fired. Yet we're seeing reports of, of physicians and nurses actually being fired for complaining about lack of protective equipment or trying to wear their own uh, PPE in situations where their employer doesn't want them to because it might scare the public. Uh, why do you think that, you know, activities within the Defense Department are discussed or within this department or that department, but uh, Treasury, you know, that kind of thing, but uh, uh, the Secretary of Labor isn't there and and the issue of sort of worker protection is not on the front burner? I think the White House has a, a fundamental, I don't know if it's disdain or just not caring about American workers. I mean, it's there was a lot of talk in the election about how uh, this was going to be a president for the working class. But in fact, the needs of workers across the board have really been ignored. And instinctively, the Trump administration, the White House doesn't think, well, what are the needs of workers here? They have to be forced to think about these issues. And the fact that the Secretary of Labor is not even part of this discussion is shocking. I mean, when we were dealing with this issue during the Obama administration around H1N1, or for example, when the Ebola outbreak happened, and there were meetings in the Situation Room of how we were going to approach this, OSHA was at all of those meetings, and the Labor Department was quite prominent. They have become invisible in this whole response. Hmm. You've written that a lot of people who work for OSHA uh, then go into industry afterwards, like the very industries that they were regulating in the government, they leave and they go into those industries and then they understand how OSHA works. Why do they do that? Well, there are two different things. There are people who had the position I had, the Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, who are, they're sometimes scientists, more often not their attorneys, and they go, they run OSHA for a few years to get their ticket punched, and then they can make a lot of money representing those industries against OSHA. You know, I'm an epidemiologist committed to public health, so I stayed in the job for more than seven years and then went back into academia. You know, the revolving door is not so uncommon in federal agencies. It's true in the Food and Drug Administration and any sort of regulatory agency. Industry is usually willing to pay a lot of money to people who have influence within the agencies that they've left. Can I just get you to um, give me a sense of the amount of money? Like, do you have a sense of like about how much is the difference between what you would make in the federal government and what you might make if you then went to work for the people who you were regulating? 
Yeah, well, uh, let's talk real money. The The salary for the Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, the, all the Assistant Secretaries across the country, when I was there, was somewhere around $150,000 a year. Okay. You could go into the private sector in a job in the corporation, running their safety and health program, representing that corporation in dealing with OSHA once a year or two has passed, or dealing with Congress. And you could make at minimum four or five times that salary in the first year that you leave, and sometimes a great deal more than that. So five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. You you are making one fifty and leave, and at minimum to okay, uh, okay. As, as the vice president for uh, occupational safety and health at a major corporation, you'd be making more than that. Okay. The other thing though that happens, which is not nefarious, but it's unfortunate for the government, is uh, OSHA trains their inspectors to understand what hazards are and how to abate them and how to work with employers. And then employers hire those same inspectors for twice their salary or more. Mm. We had great offices in Houston who would be inspecting oil refineries. At various points, the same oil companies could hire some of those inspectors and double their salary. And you want oil companies to hire good technical people. On the other hand, it really hurt the government and hurt the people of the United States who need those trained industrial hygienists to be able to understand what's going on in workplaces. But, you know, you can't stop people from moving to better jobs. Right. If OSHA paid their safety and health staff better, if the government in general paid inspectors more, I think we'd lose fewer people to the private sector. Can you talk about Republicans versus Democrats here. I mean, I assume there is a revolving door in every, you know, that that's true with every administration. I and mean, if you're talking about, you know, somebody making $150,000 one year and the next year making like 600, I mean, that would be true in any administration. Can you give me, is, is that your feeling that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is across party lines? To some extent, it's true. It's certainly, it's more true that the the people who Republican presidents appoint tend to be a, attorneys who are eager to be working in the private sector and making a lot more money. But it's not totally true. During the George W. Bush administration, OSHA had two different administrators, uh, one who was industrial hygienist, who went back into private consulting, but continued to work as a professional scientist. And the other was an attorney who immediately went back to a law firm representing companies against OSHA, uh, companies where workers had been killed, for example, in really you know, terrible, preventable incidents. His job was to make sure those uh, employers got minimal fines. So let's take a quick break here. I'm talking to David Michaels. He ran OSHA during the Obama administration. He's the author of the new book, The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money and the Science of Deception. He's also a professor at the George Washington University School of Public Health. We've been talking about science and health during a pandemic. When we come back, I want to expand this conversation out. We're going to talk a little bit about other ways in which our health is affected and how those effects intersect with politics. You can catch this whole conversation and all of our conversations every week by subscribing to Innovation Hub on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. 
In the mid-1930s, a chemist at a DuPont lab in New Jersey watched his experiment fail. But the failure was weird. The gas he had thought that he was making just was not there when the experiment was over. Instead, he created a white powder, almost wax-like. It was something called polytetrafluoroethylene. And what could that possibly be good for? Well, as it turned out, a lot. Fluorine compounds had a really remarkable characteristic that they could essentially protect almost anything from oil and water. And they were very good as coatings, for example. David Michaels encountered some of those chemicals when he served in the Clinton administration, overseeing the safety of those who worked with nuclear weapons. Out of that came products like Teflon, uh, Gore-Tex, Scotchgard, and many, many products you'd never heard of. Every, up until recently, every pizza box and most fast food containers were coated with these chemicals because they maintained the integrity of the cardboard in you know, when uh, holding an oily product like a pepperoni pizza. Even burned food won't stick to Teflon, so it's always easy to clean. Cookware never needs scouring. If it has DuPont, Teflon. Michaels, who went on to head up OSHA in the Obama administration, says that the divide between science and government isn't just something that we're seeing now in the era of coronavirus. It's something that's been growing for a long time, as he writes in his book, The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money and the Science of Deception. It became increasingly clear in the 1960s and 70s that exposure to these chemicals had significant health effects. They weren't well known, and they certainly weren't published by these companies that had workers who were exposed and, and did some toxicological testing as well, testing on animals, and found increasing problems with them. How many did you lose? 190. 190 cows. You tell me nothing's wrong here. The 2019 movie, Dark Waters, tells the story of these chemicals and of a lawyer who increasingly realizes their impact on a rural swath of West Virginia. That chemical, what if you drank it? Drank it? It's like saying, what if I swallowed a tire? What if whatever's killing those cows is in the drinking water? Essentially, the story, uh, which is a very powerful one, was that cows in a pasture very near the DuPont plant in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia, were just dying of terrible deaths. Michael says it was clear that a chemical from the plant was causing the deaths. And soon it became obvious it was also in human water supplies. But the coming apart of science and government meant that lawmakers and regulators, they had a hard time getting out ahead of the problem. In a large lawsuit, uh, DuPont and the attorney suing them agreed to fund independent scientists to examine whether or not there was an effect on the population of people who drank contaminated water. And I'm sure DuPont thought that they weren't having any negative impact on these people. They wouldn't have agreed to it if they really thought that there was something they were trying to hide. And that's probably just sort of the bias of, of having a financial relationship to a, an exposure. People at DuPont thought this chemical is probably safe. 
They agreed to fund these three well-known epidemiologists, two from the United States, one from England, to do studies. And they did these studies, and these are the only studies on the scale ever done, but they looked at tens of thousands of people in the area, and they found, in fact, that drinking this chemical and these chemicals in fairly small quantities increased cancer risk Hmm. and caused immunological dysfunction. And now DuPont is involved in a bunch of very big lawsuits and paying people large amounts of money, and they have to clean up the water system. But more importantly, we're now seeing that these PFAS chemicals have contaminated water in all parts of the United States. 99% of us have PFAS in our blood, in our systems. This category of chemical was used very widely in firefighting foam, uh, especially on military bases and airports. So the water is contaminated around military bases across the country. And there's a huge push now to clean these water supplies because we know that people drinking water contaminated with PFAS chemicals are at increased risk for a bunch of different diseases. So let me ask you a little bit about the role of the government here. Did did the government, as, you know, the the, uh, potential harm of things like Teflon is being uncovered, did the government not know? Were they just not reading these studies? Were they real late to the party? Like, what's going on here? Well, first, the studies were, were never published. And, you know, again, this is a limitation to the law. The Environmental Protection Agency had a list of chemicals that if a company was using, they had to report. But we knew so little about those chemicals that they weren't on the list. And, of course, DuPont didn't make any attempt to tell the government that they were finding problems with these chemicals. And they, this was a loophole in the law. And that's often the case. You know, the laws aren't written expansively in saying if you find a problem, you've got to tell the government. And so for quite a long time, this really was secret. When it came out, how much DuPont knew and how much they contaminated you know, the, the water system in West Virginia and Ohio, EPA issued a fine. It was a few million dollars. It, it felt big for EPA, but it was you know, pocket change for DuPont. Right. More recently, the government has gotten on the case, and there's a, first they're funding a tremendous amount of research through the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. But the harder question for government agencies is how do you issue regulations around this? And again, the industry is hiring product defense consulting firms to question the science, to claim that PFAS exposure doesn't increase cancer risk, even though we have these epidemiologic studies that can never be repeated. um, And there are of very, very high quality. They say, well, there's a problem with this study. There's a problem with that study. We're not going to get better studies. But again, you've got the same situation. You know, when I looked at that when I was a government regulator and I would see a report written by scientists who were employed by a firm who specializes in product defense, I would immediately discount it because I know how that business works. If you're mm-hmm. running a company, and there are a bunch of these around around the country, which are asked by a large manufacturer to produce a report saying this chemical is safe or the science is in question, that's their business model. See, I think most Americans would be shocked to learn that there are such things as product defense firms, that like you can hire them to write a report um, saying that XYZ product is safe, even though like maybe it's not safe. And I'm sure they don't necessarily say that, but they wink as they send it. Yeah, because right, right, right. Because the, 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 the model of these companies is to produce the reports their clients want. If they produced reports that didn't go in the interests of their clients, they wouldn't get the next job. And so you can see the same scientists over and over, many of whom actually worked 
for the tobacco industry years ago and then worked for the asbestos industry and now work for companies that make pesticides or that make, you know, you name it, that they will produce the report that says the same thing. So if a company, though, that manufactures, a, a, you know, a chemical like Teflon, you, you talked about DuPont, you know, having to pay out a lot of money, being in lawsuits. This has obviously happened with opioid manufacturers as well. It certainly, on a very large scale, happened with cigarette manufacturers. If they ultimately are involved in these enormous lawsuits that are, you know, billions of dollars and, and just incredibly costly for the company... Um, why fight the science in the meantime if things might come out in the end and you're just going to be on the hook for a ton of money? Well, a number of reasons. First, in the long run, all three of those examples that you raised, the cost to the companies are less than the profits that they made over that time. The tobacco industry, which has paid out billions, Mm. is doing very well and has never suffered at all from having to pay out billions. There's some question about perhaps one or two of the opioid manufacturers may go into bankruptcy, but their owners, and there's, there's one, Purdue, in, which is a privately held company by the Sackler family, they've transferred billions of dollars out of the company into their you know, private accounts. So, and even DuPont, the cost to DuPont is really negligible in the big picture. There are a few industries that actually have been hurt by their activities like this, the asbestos industry, for example, for the most part, You know, unfortunately, the cost to them really isn't that high. The other thing is, I think CEOs face a a problem when they have a product that's out there that is making money for them and there are allegations of harm. They're in a difficult situation in that if they hire independent scientists to do a real thorough job and they find a problem, then they're obliged to deal with it because... You know, there's no safe harbor. They can't say, well, look, we tried to do the right thing. We shouldn't be sued. And that's unfortunate. I think we, we need to have a situation that allows science to develop much more independently and without fear of what the implications of the results are. Because right now, if I ran a company and I had a, a very good product, it puts you in a tough situation. You say, well, look, the, it turns out this product is killing people. Once you admit that, a, you've got to pull it from the market, and B, you're you know, likely to face more litigation. So I wanted to ask you about a topic that when I read through your book and looked at different things, I mean, of course, we know what's happened with opioids and the really detrimental effect they've had. Um, one thing that I think jumped out at me, uh, I think people will be interested in, is um, the effect of uh, alcohol. And... Um, you know, we 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 believe generally. I think there's a lot of reporting that moderate consumption of alcohol is fine. Obviously, you know, too much is not good. Um, can you just talk about what the science is there and and the role? What is the role of companies that manufacture alcoholic beverages? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question. You know, we all know that that uh, drinking large quantities has tremendously really terrible effect on people, both their their health and social interaction, violence increases risk, it reduces lifespan tremendously. But the question about moderate drinking has been one that's been, and you know, one scientists have been looking at for a long time. It's in the industry's interest to convince you that moderate drinking is safe. In fact, they have a big campaign to convince you that it's good for you. And 
look, I think alcohol plays an important uh, sort of social lubrication effect. You know, we, many of us uh, like a drink at the end of the day sometimes, and it's a, you know certainly something that I don't look at as dangerous. But the first thing to note is that the campaigns to say that red wine, for example, uh, is good for you, that decreases heart attack risk. There's, there really is no evidence to support that. There is some evidence that alcohol in general does reduce heart attack risk, but it's balanced out by increasing risk of several other diseases. And so while the risks are small, it is of concern to some people in some situations. You know, breast cancer risk increases with any amount of alcohol. And women who are greatly increased of increased risk of breast cancer, have to look at that and think about that issue a little bit. But the industry has spent a lot of time focusing the public on that you can drink moderately and safely. And, you know, that probably isn't true. Now, is the government, should the government have a bigger role in letting people know that like, as you were saying, maybe that isn't, maybe it isn't true. Like maybe the ability to drink responsibly, maybe that's a like a paradox. Maybe you can't really drink responsibly. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing is everybody thinks that they're drinking moderately. That no, no one, uh, that's not true, no one, but most people, even people who drink quite a bit have convinced themselves that they're drinking moderately. <laughs> and so if you tell people, if you drink moderately, you're not really at increased risk. That's not very effective because everybody thinks that they're drinking moderately. It's a tough issue to deal with and certainly not one where you want to say the government's going to stop you from purchasing alcohol. But at minimum, labeling alcoholic beverages is something we should be doing. And there are some labels now on alcoholic beverages. Certainly pregnant women have been warned very widely not to drink, but the warnings should probably go beyond that. Uh, and one thing the alcohol industry has worked very, very hard to oppose, both in the United States and across the world, are any sort of labels telling people that uh, even moderate drinking does increase risk of cancer and a couple other things. And, the, you know, the, there's not really debate over this question about uh, cancer. And so a whole bunch of different cancers are increased by alcohol consumption. And as I said, that, that doesn't mean that everybody should stop drinking alcohol, but we have to be aware of what the risks are. Um, you know, do you think that in general, when you look at the government now and and how things have evolved in terms of um, in terms of companies, as you say, sort of manufacturing doubt about their about the harm of their products, do you think that um, human health kind of takes a backseat to commercial interests, to uh, the interests of economic growth? Well, there's no question it does. I mean, it's. It happens in every administration. It, I think it, the priorities are a little bit different if it's a Democratic or Republican administration. But economic growth is, is important, but it can't be at the expense of the public's health. And that we're certainly seeing that in the discussion around the coronavirus. Up until recently, President Trump was talking about how the, the, uh, the cure could be worse than disease. The, the problem being that the, the stock market has tanked and that uh, making people stay home, which would save hundreds of thousands of lives, will also have a, a negative economic effect. I think this example couldn't be more clear. We need to be saving lives 
And if the economy is going to suffer for a while, we have to make sure that people aren't additionally hurt by having no income. Um, and hopefully the government will step in and provide far wider income support because we need to do this to stop the transmission of the disease. It becomes more complicated when you're putting out a regulation about a, a chemical uh, a workplace exposure because in some cases it's going to cost uh, the employer some money, it's going to cost the manufacturer some money, but you know, if you're thinking about the costs and benefits, people's lives are really very valuable in ways beyond, beyond simply how much you know they're worth in monetary terms. Hmm. David Michaels is a professor at George Washington University's School of Public Health. He led OSHA during the Obama administration, and he's the author of The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money, and the Science of Deception. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, I very much enjoyed speaking with you. If you want to learn more about the role that OSHA could play in protecting workers from coronavirus, you can check out David's article on this topic at our website, innovationhub.org.